are the Mystery History Podcast. I'm Allison. I'm Jordan. How you doing today, Jordan? Not too bad. How's quarantine life treating you? Not great. Not great. <laughs> My sleep schedule is so messed up. Is it? I was up till 2 a.m. last night. Me too. And I woke up at 10. Well, I woke up at like 7.30, but that's because I have a child. Yeah. I feel like garbage. I've slept till 10 the last two days. Really? Yeah. That's the longest I've slept in like 10 years. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm recovering from a pretty serious injury of my arm. Oh my god! Somebody hit me with a wet kitchen rag, and it gave me a pretty bad welt. You'd have thought she was dying. I don't know who that could have been. I don't either. Somebody terrible did that. Somebody terrible. <laughs> no, but I don't know. We'll see how things go the next week with stuff opening and. Life kind of resuming some normalcy. Yeah, yeah, because I don't know how other states are, but we're in Ohio, and yeah, they're starting to open up restaurants next week and stuff like that. So hair salons, hair salons. Yeah. I got to get my eyebrows waxed. It looks <laughs> crazy up there, but I don't know. I probably still will not go to restaurants for quite some time. Not because I'm afraid of the virus, but just because I'm not waiting. Oh, I'm Can going. Can you imagine how long of a wait, especially if they have to do a six foot rule? I don't think they're going to do that. No? I don't think so. I think they're just going to let it go. I just feel like that is going to... I'm too impatient. If I'm hungry, I want to eat like right now. So... But then it's, it's... What is it? Like the outsides next week? Yeah, And outside, then the and then, insides the following week? Yep. That's what they're saying, unless something changes. So hopefully, we'll start going back to normal life. Yeah. So... Um, we got, you want to talk about our website? Yeah. Just to remind you guys, we have the website, uh, at it's mysteryhistorypodcast.com and we have all our episodes up there. Uh, you can subscribe to a newsletter. We're going to start sending out, uh, about the episodes that are upcoming and uh, we have a store. We have shirts, uh, long sleeve shirts, three quarter sleeves, hoodies, pillows, phone cases, stickers, all kinds of stuff on there. So yeah, we just ordered some stickers for our car. So hopefully those will come soon and we can start representing on the road. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they look pretty good, so mm-hmm. I'm excited about it. Yeah. And then I think since the last time we recorded, we got a listener in France. Yep. We so oui, we. Oui. <laughs> Thank you to France for tuning in and listening to us. Yep. That's nine countries or eight countries, I believe. Yeah. That's pretty wild. Yeah. Um, so this week's episode, we are going to talk about David Koresh and the Waco siege. Yep. So George's going to jump into his early years and then, um, we're going to talk about the days of the siege, get into some conspiracy theories and then talk about the Netflix documentary, not documentary. I'm sorry. It was a mini series. Yeah. There's like five or six episodes of it. And, um, so we'll get started. So, David Koresh is not really David Koresh. What? He was born Vernon Wayne Howell on August 17th, 1959 in Houston, Texas. Uh, his mother was 14. Her name was Bonnie Sue Clark, and his father was Bobby Wayne Howell. Um, he never met his father, so that might have caused some resentment. Mm-hmm. But, um, Daddy issues. Yeah. Um, his mother began a relationship with a violent alcoholic which caused him to live with his grandmother when he was four um, until he was seven. And that's after her mom or his mom found somebody else named Roy Haldeman. And apparently he wasn't abusive because they got him back. Um, And Bonnie Sue and 
Roy had a son together in 1966 named Roger, who I believe was Crush's only sibling. Okay. Yeah. Um, he described his childhood as lonely due to his poor study skills and dyslexia. He was put into special education classes and nicknamed Vernie by his fellow students. Uh, he dropped out of Garland High School in Texas his junior year. Um, when he was 19, he had a legal sexual relationship with a 15-year-old girl who became pregnant. And then he then claimed to have become a born-again Christian in the Southern Baptist Church and soon joined the Seventh-day Adventist Church, um, where he became infatuated with the pastor's daughter. Um, while praying for guidance, he opened his eyes and allegedly found the Bible open at Isaiah thirty-four sixteen, stating that none should want for her mate. Convinced this was a sign from God, he approached the pastor and told him that God wanted him to have his daughter for a wife. The pastor threw him out. Uh, <laughs> when he continued to persist with his, the pursuit with his daughter, he was expelled from the congregation. Hmm. So that kind of, um, <clears throat> thou shall not want, so he's just going to do everybody All right. pretty much. Yeah. Hmm. But that kind of shows you the kind of person he is. He doesn't like to be told no. Right. Because he just kept going at it. Um, he went to Hollywood right after that to become a rock star and he did not become a rock star. <laughs> he quickly moved back to Waco in 1981 where he joined the Branch Davidians, uh, a religious, religious sect, which began in 1935 and had settled 10 miles outside of Waco. Uh, at one time it had more than 1400 members. and nearly 1,400 rounds of ammunition. During the fight, Roden was shot in the chest and hands. Hmm. That's rough. Yeah. When his followers went on trial for attempted murder, the seven were acquitted, and a mistrial was declared for Koresh's case. Koresh told the jury he and his men went to Mount Carmel to find evidence of a corpse or of corpse abuse by Roden, and their shots were aimed at a tree. Doesn't make any sense They're at all. They're terrible shots. They're terrible liars, too. <laughs> oh, we're just trying to shoot that tree. <laughs> A little target practice. By 1990, Koresh had become the leader of the Branch Davidians and legally changed his name, saying on the court document that it was for publicity and business purposes. He said the switch arose from his belief that he was now the head of the house of David, the biblical house of David. Koresh is a Hebrew translation of Cyrus, the name of the Persian king who allowed the Jews held captive in Babylon to return to Israel. So the Branch Davidians, uh, they broke away from the Seventh-day Adventists. They believe they are God's chosen people for the last days prior to the end of the world and that God will send a prophet to guide them. The Branch Davidian doctrines fall into three basic categories. First, those which seem to be a result of the cult Seventh-day Adventist roots. Second, those originating with the Rodents. And then third, those that came through David Koresh's revelations. The first category would include, one, Sabbatarianism. I think. I think Sabbatarianism. Yeah, that sounds right. That's the belief that the Seventh-day Sabbath must be observed. Vegetarianism, so but not all of the, the Seventh-day Adventists are vegetarians. Abstinence from alcohol, tobacco, and non-medicinal drugs. And four, an excessive preoccupation with prophecy. Huh. 
So the Waco standoff, as a leader of the Branch Davidians, Koresh claimed he had cracked the code of the seven seals in the book of Revelations, which predicted events leading to the apocalypse. He told his followers that the Lord willed the Davidians to build an army of God. As a result, they started stockpiling weapons. On February 28, 1993, the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms raided the Davidians' Mount Carmel compound near Waco. After they received uh, reports that they were violating federal firearms regulations, so that wasn't that um, they were modifying the weapons that they had stockpiled yep. to semi-automatic, correct? To fully automatic. Fully automatic. They were semi-automatic. Okay, yeah. But I don't think they ever had any proof that they were doing that. Right. I think it was just a suspicion, which I don't understand how they... Well, and I, I think they got spooked by the fact that they were stockpiling all these weapons. Right. And then just kind of said, well, we heard that they were yeah. modifying them. Well, they said that was for the end of times, right? That's why they yeah. had all the weapons, mm-hmm. quote unquote, is just the end of times. Now, I've got a timeline and I've got, so this this standoff was 51 days between Koresh and the federal agents. A four-hour gunfight left six of the of Koresh's followers and four ATF agents dead. Um, so we're going to go into the timeline here of every day that had something going on. Sunday, February 28th, 1993, at about 9.30 a.m., agents of the ATF attempt to execute arrest and search warrants against David Koresh in the Branch Davidian compound. Gunfire erupts and four ATF agents are killed and 16 are wounded. An undetermined number of Davidians are killed and injured. Within a few hours, the FBI becomes the lead agency for resolving the standoff. Jeff Jamar is named the on-site commander. By the afternoon, advanced units of the FBI's hostage rescue team arrive, known as HRT. So if I say HRT, that's what I'm talking about. And telephone conversations are underway between Koresh Steve Snyder and Wayne Martin on one side and the ATF's Jim Kavanagan and Waco Police Lieutenant Larry Lynch on the other. Koresh discloses that he's been wounded in the hip and left wrist. Koresh is allowed to broadcast his religious teachings on Dallas Radio KRLD and does a CNN telephone interview. Michael Schroeder, a Branch Davidian, is killed when he tries to return to the main building. Texas Rangers begin an investigation, but are barred by the FBI from continuing. At eight, or I'm sorry, at five thirty p.m., Jamar arrives at Waco and chooses Byron Sage of the FBI as chief negotiator. President Clinton follows events closely throughout the day. All right, Monday, March first, in the early morning, Acting Attorney General Stuart Gearson gives an update to Clinton, who implicitly endorses a negotiated solution and asks to be advised if there is any change in strategy. Larry Potts at FBI headquarters in Washington and Jamar in Waco are on command. Negotiations continue, and over the course of the day, 10 children are sent out of the compound. By 5 p.m., the FBI takes control with with a fully functioning command post. FBI agents in armored vehicles deploy to the compound's perimeter. Koresh becomes extremely agitated when the armored vehicles move closer and when his phone line is cut to only accept outgoing calls to the negotiators. Uh, at least twice, Koresh says suicide is not being contemplated. Clinton and FBI Director William Sessions talk about how to handle the crisis. Sessions favors a waiting strategy, and Clinton approves this tactic. Mm-hmm. 
Tuesday, March 2nd, in the wee hours, the negotiations continue. In the early morning, Koresh makes a one-hour audio tape of his religious teachings, adding a preamble promising to surrender upon the national broadcast of tape. At 1.30, the tape is broadcast over the Christian Broadcasting Network. At 5.58, the word is relayed to negotiations from Koresh that God has spoken to him and had told him to wait. Gerson states that the strategy is to talk them out no matter how long it took. Clinton calls Gerson and agrees to deploy military vehicles for safety purposes. Which doesn't make any sense. No. A lot of this... Why are you going to deploy military vehicles if you're just going to wait and that's fine? A lot of this is say one thing, act another. Uh Like it's very... I don't know. Some things they do are just... doesn't make any sense. Wednesday, March 3rd. In a conciliatory gesture, the FBI interviews or intervenes. I'm sorry, to have murder charges dropped against two elderly women, Davidians, who had left the compound on March 2nd. Speaking with negotiators, Koresh accounts for his failure to surrender as agreed by he's saying he's dealing with his he's dealing now with his father, and not with your bureaucratic system of government. As he delivers various rambling sermons focusing on such biblical matters as unlocking the seven seals and interrupting God's intentions about the end of the world. In a late evening conversation, he bristles at the movement of armored vehicles around the compound and says the FBI would have to look at some of the pictures of the little ones that end up perishing. Which, That's a, he's right. Yeah. I mean, they're... Those people in there, those kids didn't are innocent. Mm-hmm. They're just, they don't have a say. They're just following what their parents are doing. That's the thing that makes me most upset about this whole thing mm-hmm. is... All the little ones. Yeah. If you want to do something, that's fine, but you shouldn't be dragging along someone who can't make up their own mind. Mm-hmm. But that, I mean, that happens not just here, but in yeah. wars and everything People's political agenda, their religious agenda gets in the way, and I think clouds their judgment a lot about just what is the right thing to do here. They should have, before the first day even, try to get the children out of there. Yeah. Like, just by talking. Yeah. Instead of showing up with guns and all that stuff. At the same point of that, though, because we are of sound mind, at least I think so. Right. I would not... Just let my child go. I would go with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I get the point of not just releasing your child to just whoever, especially if they feel like they are aggressive and the the government is coming at them. You're not going to release your child to somebody that you think is trying to essentially kill you, which yeah, I think but- a lot... A lot of them were brainwashed into thinking that right. they were coming to take their kids away and they were there to hurt them and because they, they were f- aggressive towards them. Yeah, they were, definitely. But if that's how you felt, then you should have, instead of having guns pointed at you, wouldn't you want to be behind the people pointing the guns? Yeah. Like if... Well, but they thought, I'm sure that if they came out, they were going to get shot. No, but Especially, they had released people. All they had to do was... Especially, though, that one guy who tried to get back into the compound. Yeah, that was... And they shot him from yeah. trying to get back in. Well, yeah, one of the girl's husbands was yeah. out on the town whenever this all happened. And then he tried to come back, and then they shot, they him. shot him. But... He might have had it. I think he had a he gun. Had, I think he was pointing a gun at him. Yeah. Which is, yeah. But I think if you just walk out... There's some... Like, a couple times people just walked outside the front door, and they didn't shoot at him. Yeah. So, I mean, if you walk out with your hands up, they're not going to shoot you. Yeah. And if you're a child and a, a mom holding a kid... So it's, 
I don't know. I just you they have made to, a lot of mistakes though. I don't know. Yeah, that's hard to say they wouldn't have because mm-hmm. yeah, I think there's just everybody was under so much stress. Yeah, which is it's hard to take out the human factor because mm-hmm. it's there's a lot going on in someone's brain when something like this is going down. Yeah, it's hard to think about what other people were thinking. Thursday, March 4th, negotiators jawbone for 11 hours with various Davidians, including 7 hours and 38 minutes with Koresh. The negotiators remain calm and conciliatory. A memo written by Pete Schmeck and Mark Young, two FBI psychological profilers, says a strategy of negotiations coupled with ever-increasing tactical presence could be counterproductive and result in the loss of life. So that's what we just said. I mean, you're going to bring tanks in, you're going to bring extra bodies, pointing guns at the compound. I I could see where they would be nervous about coming outside. Yeah. Well, that's, what again, what they say. They say they want this all to end peacefully. Uh But then why do you have... All, All these, these weapons. And, yep. yep. So it's kind of counterproductive. Friday, March 5th. Nine-year-old Heather Jones leaves compound wearing a note pinned to her jacket on which her mother says that once the children are out, the adults will die. Koresh and his top aide, Steve Schneider, deny that they are contemplating suicide. The FBI seeks advice of experts and Davidians on the likelihood of a mass suicide by the Davidians and receives inconsistent information. The FBI concludes that the Davidians have a one-year supply of food, including abundant military rations, or MREs, meals ready to eat. Koresh continues preaching and threatening violence. Saturday, March 6th. In an early morning conversation, Schneider suggests that federal agents might burn the compound down to destroy evidence. Koresh and Snyder are both highly agitated and upset. For most of the day, the FBI becomes concerned that the negotiations are at an impasse and acknowledges frustration in attempting to negotiate with Koresh. It's understandable. Yeah. I mean, I just... I get that these people are essentially nuts, but... I could definitely see where their frustration is if their families are in there and they're feeling like they're being held hostage essentially in their own home by these, this, Mm -hmm. you know, this government that they haven't done anything wrong in their eyes. But you need a little, it needs to be a little bit of give and take. Absolutely. Because they just kind of, they don't really do anything. Yep. They just express their frustration. And if they say that they're going to have, you know, a year's worth of rations, yeah. they can't afford to stand off for a whole year, which I'm surprised, honestly, they let it go the 51 days. Yeah. That's pretty crazy. Yeah, it did go a lot longer than I expected also. Sunday, March 7th. Talks with Koresh and others inside the compound go around in circles. The FBI refuses to deliver milk to the children unless more of them are released. Koresh says that all the children left in his compound are his biological descendants. A memo by Schmerick and Young advises against tactical options in favor of establishing trust with Koresh. They predict the assault of the compound and say mass suicide is a possibility. Gerson talks Sessions out of going to Waco to negotiate directly with Koresh, which could have been huge. Mm-hmm. It's, there's a lot of things in this that are hindsight 2020. Absolutely. Like, because there's so many times when it could have been. Just you do something simple and it's all done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, saved all those people. Yep, that's like it's almost it's just as much on Koresh as it is on the ATF people or the FBI people. They made a lot of mistakes. Well, I mean, if he would have just 
if he was like, there's multiple times people came to him and asked to leave. Yeah. And he just said no, which is like, it's so it's just as much his fault. Yeah. Cause, but that's why I think, spoiler alert, what happens to him happens to him. Yeah. If you know what I mean. Right. Nothing good. No. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing good is coming to him. Monday, March 8th. Koresh's wounds are said to be healing. The FBI delivers six gallons of milk to the compound. Smerrick Young memo states that strong show of force will play into Koresh's hands. Garrison passes his Waco portfolio on to Webster Hubble, an acting associate attorney general who is briefed by the FBI. A videotape of the children in the compound is sent out by the Davidians. The negotiator's log shows that when the tape is reviewed, there is concern that if the tape is released to the media, Koresh would gain much sympathy. Yeah. So that's... Because it's just a dad and all of his kids. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, that's not... You see American being trapped by people. Mm -hmm. That's like... I don't know. That's shady. Well, and... I don't think we really touched on it, but all this happened right after Ruby Ridge happened, mm-hmm. which was also a cluster. So there's already a lot of public distrust with. Yeah, with the authorities. Now, I don't know how much the Branch Davidians, I mean, watched the news or knew about that. But that could put some bad thoughts in their head, too, as to, okay, well, this happened at Ruby Ridge. Is this what's going to happen here? Right. Are they going to shoot me? Yeah, there's a lot of, it's a weird time mm-hmm. for all this. Tuesday, March 9th, at 2.15 a.m., the electricity to the compound is cut off. Koresh says he will not talk further until power is restored, and it is restored. Schneider expresses outrage over the movement of armored vehicles around the compound. HRT members see weapons and windows and firing ports being cut in plywood placed in the windows. Schmerick Young Memo recommends various tactical measures. On several occasions, tactical pressure is exerted on the divisions either without consulting the negotiators or over the negotiators' objections. Wednesday, March 10th. Electricity is temporarily cut off again. Four and a half hours of negotiations yield no progress. Thursday, March 11th. Koresh does not participate in negotiations until 7.03 p.m. There is no progress in negotiations except a promise that Kathy Schroeder will come out the next day. Friday, March 12th. Reno is sworn in as attorney general. Schroeder leaves the compound, saying no mass suicide would occur. Dr. John Hagman, a local physician, consults over the phone. Over the objections of some FBI negotiators, Jamar orders all electricity to be cut off for good because he wanted those inside the compound to experience the same wet and cold night as the tactical personnel outside. Hmm. Reno is extensively, extensively briefed on Waco by FBI the Davidians say the power shutoff is a huge, huge setback, causing Schneider and others to change their minds about coming out. The justification for cutting the power is that it's going to be a very cold night and maximum effect would be gained in making the Davidians uncomfortable inside the compound. Also, cutting the power is designed to challenge Koresh's control of the situation and to raise the level of stress within the compound to force more departures. I don't think, though, it. I think it worked the opposite. They wanted to stress them to be uncomfortable to come outside, but it's just making them more scared of what's outside because they're doing all that. Yeah. Which I can see both sides of that. But mm-hmm. It is. You want to push people almost to insanity. Yeah. So where they're so uncomfortable, they have to leave. Yeah. But. All I think about are those poor babies. Yeah. 
But again, they could have just walked out. Mm-hmm. That's the thing that makes me so frustrated about all this is it's so easy. Well, like you said, just, though, hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah, they would have known. I'm sure they didn't yeah, expect to no. what's happen, what's going to come. But yeah, still, it's just you're in a bad situation. Mm-hmm. You, there's a door literally right there. Yeah, so you can just walk out and it's over. I mean, sure, you probably have some legal legal ramifications, but I mean, better than dying. And you're not in a cult anymore, so that's mm-hmm. always a plus. Saturday, March thirteenth. Schneider complains that people inside the compound are cold and freezing. The FBI notifies Koresh that his mother has retained attorneys, Richard DeGarren and Jack Zimmerman, to represent him. Sunday, March 14th. At nightfall, the FBI begins to illuminate the compound with bright lights to disrupt sleep, to put additional pressure on those inside, and increase the safety of the HRT. Monday, March 15th, the FBI establishes a modern negotiation strategy, continuing to insist on peaceful peaceful resolution, but refusing to listen to any more of what they call Bible babble. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Schneider and another Davidian, Wayne Martin, meet outside the compound with Sage and McLean County Sheriff Jack Hartwell. That would be very frustrating. Because I get, I don't want to mean to like, I don't mean to like, downplay any religious people but it's like if you're trying to talk logically with someone about getting these people out of here and they just keep saying stuff from the bible it's yeah like, there's no be, logic there it's no. a big what if right but the hammer's coming down yeah but it's just you can't have a conversation with them because mm-hmm. you try to talk to them and then he just says something from the bible yeah so it's nothing none For of his your thoughts laws of man don't confine yeah. me it's like well they are <laughs> it's not like having a conversation with someone though you're just talking and then the other person's just saying something someone else said yeah so it's there's no conversation really happening well and whenever i i was i've listened to other podcasts about this and i've read a few books on it and they would say that he would talk for hours and hours and hours and make these people sit in pews and listen to him for like eight hours straight just spewing bible That's bible crazy. babble All right I love that. I'm going to use it. Um, yeah, that's terrible. But, yeah, like. It I shows you, if, again, who he is. Like, Yeah, he's a narcissist. He thinks he's, yeah. Mm-hmm. He literally thinks he's, like, God on earth. Yeah. Wild. He wrong. Yep. Wednesday, March 17th. Koresh refuses to allow Schneider to have another face-to-face conversation with Sage. In a confrontational conversation, what Jamar calls the Dutch uncle conversation, Sage urges Koresh to surrender, challenging his sincerity and calling on him to take some positive action. Sage tells Schneider his entreaties apparently have fallen on deaf ears. With Sage's agreement, Jamar decides to increase the pressure on Koresh. Schmerich leaves Waco. And I get that because you're there. These guys are in the field waiting on something to happen. It doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. And then... You know, how long are you going to let this go on? Right. Thursday, March 18th. The FBI broadcasts a message to those in the compound over a loudspeaker saying they will be treated fairly if they come out. See that again. should have happened a long time ago, though. Don't you think? Yeah, well, I think. Because you got, it took them that long to realize that Koresh was running the show and maybe they needed to have some outside, you know, so everybody could hear what they were right. saying because you're talking to Koresh. He could be going back to these mm-hmm. people and saying, they said if you come out, you're, we're going to shoot you. So now they should have done that a long time ago. But if I'm in there and I hear that, I'm like, I'm fucking out of here. Yeah. 
Because you, like Hell you said, yeah. you could be thinking that they're going to shoot you when you come out. Mm-hmm. But if they are saying, like, well, you're going to be fine. You, They needed to take the words out of his mouth mm-hmm. and put it in their own yep. to those people a long time ago. Yep. Because like you said, they were probably being told that bad, terrible things are going to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was a crazy situation. Friday, March 19th. In a purported attempt to address some of the Davidians' concerns... FBI delivers to the compound legal documents, letters from Koresh's attorneys, and other items. Koresh says he is ready to come out and face the music. Two Davidians, Brad Branch and Kevin Whitecliffe, come out of the compound. Good for you, yeah, Brad and Kevin. <laughs> I would just grab people. Like, if I was one of those people, I would just grab a kid and yeah. be like, we're out of here. Yeah. Because I'm sure they're not just strangers. Like, yeah. you are close to these people. Mm-hmm. So I'd be like, I'm taking... That'd be the other psychological part of it. Like, a lot of these cults... Like Scientology. Right. Once you, if you get out, you can't talk to any of the people that are still in. Right. So that's another kind of psychological warfare that I'm sure Koresh is using on these people. This is your whole life, You'll never see your family again. Right. Which is terrible. Yeah. Saturday, March 20th, another Davidian, Rita Riddle, comes out of the compound. Sounds like a fake name. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Such a made-up name. (laughs) Sunday, March 21st, at 12.15 a.m., two more women, Victorian, Mm. Victorine? I don't know. Victorine. I like like Victorine, so we're going to go with that. Sounds like an (laughs) orange. Hollinsworth and Annette Richards exit the compound. Koresh says, I told you that my God says wait. Rita Riddle, Gladys Ottoman, Sheila Martin, James Lawton, and Ophelia Santoya come out. In the evening hours, the FBI begins playing very loud music, including Tibetan chants over the loudspeakers. At 11.35 p.m., Koresh says, because of the loud music, nobody is coming out. A short while later, the loudspeaker system malfunctions and the night ends quietly. So he probably thought, oh, I, I told them and that's why they stopped. Right. That's such a cop out there saying because of the music. Yeah. What like, a child. You weren't letting anybody else come out anyway. Yeah. Yeah, because he was pissed about those other people that left. Good for you having a brain. Mm-hmm. Monday, March 22nd. Schneider expresses his anger about the music. Uh, negotiators attempt to calm him by blaming the FBI tactical agents. Jamar calls a meeting of the crisis management team to discuss strategy, discussing stress escalation measures. If that fails, the negotiators recommend the reintroduction or the introduction of tear gas and non-lethal alternative to clear the compound. The negotiator's advisory, however, predicts Koresh will stall as long as possible, but sees a good prospect of an eventual peaceful resolution. The FBI reads a new offer to Koresh, allowing him to communicate while in jail, among other things. Provided all Davidians begin leaving the compound as of 10 a.m. on March 23rd. I feel really bad for Schneider because he's in between a rock and a hard place. He's in the middle between Koresh and the FBI. Right. He put himself in that situation. He did, and he didn't get himself out. He was the one that was a theology professor at Hawaii. Yeah, he's a smart guy. Yeah, that's it. Doesn't make sense to me. But he also had a wife there that married Koresh. Yeah, and had a baby. So not that smart of a guy. Not that smart of a guy. No, but I, I can see why he doesn't want to leave. I don't know if they're ex-wives or I don't know how that works. They're still Whenever married. Used to, yeah. So that's what I don't. I just. It's impossible to wrap my mind around that. I know. That's probably a good thing that we can't yeah. get into that headspace because they are pretty crazy. Yep. 
All right. Tuesday, March 23rd. At 10.05 a.m., Livingstone Fagan leaves the compound, the last one out during the standoff. Assistant U.S. Attorney William Johnston of Waco writes a letter to Reno complaining about the FBI's handling of the crime scene, especially the moving of vehicles around the compound. 10 p.m., the FBI shines floodlights on the compound and plays over the loudspeaker tapes of previous negotiations and messages from those who had exited the compound. That's a good strategy, too. Mm -hmm. Letting them hear in their own people they know words that everything's okay. Yeah, I don't know how that didn't work Mm-mm. better because you'd think you'd like my friend's fine yeah and being I'm, treated I'm well coming out yeah. yeah wednesday march 24th in the wee hours the fbi plays tibetan chants and christmas music angered by the music schneider refuses to talk further at the 10 30 a.m press briefing the fbi escalates its verbal assault against koresh calling him a liar and a coward that is my own personal hell right there. If they started playing Christmas music, I hate Christmas <laughs> you music. Do. It's so weird. <laughs> I'd be like, okay, you got me. You yeah. got me. I'm coming out. I would die. My ears would start bleeding and I would die. <laughs> That's all it took was Christmas music. Christmas Why do you music? hate Christmas music? I don't know what happened to me in my life that I hate it so much. I think I used to work at Kohl's and during the holiday, oh, it's, just over and it's over and constant. Over. Yeah. But I think I hated it way before then. I don't mm-hmm. know why. Evie, Ever since I can remember, you've hated it. My poor kid, she loves it, and I'm like, turn it off. <laughs> don't sing it. I don't want to hear it. I like it for the first, like, they start to play it, like, the middle of November. I just... And then by December, I'm done with it. Like, I can't. I can't do it. It gets you in the Christmas spirit, but no, then you're like, it's just the same 10 songs no, over No, it again. makes me want to kill people. Well, you need a doctor, I think. <laughs> That's not good. <laughs> That's the exact Any opposite Any psychologist effect. listing, why do I hate Christmas music? Yeah. Tell me. Otherwise, you like freaking Frosty the Snowman makes her want to murder people. It does. <laughs> does something deep inside my body that just I can't control. I don't know. I like Christmas movies. I yeah. guess like Home Alone. So it's just the music. Home yeah. Alone. What's or, the one with Arnold Schwarzenegger? Where you trying to find all the, the way? Yeah, that's a great movie. The best uh, Christmas movie of all time is Die Hard. Yeah, that's hands true. down. That's a fact. That is a Christmas movie. It's been confirmed. But Jingle All the Way has Sinbad. But that's the, like, legit, that's the worst Christmas movie ever. I think they ranked it. Jingle All the Way? Yeah. Are you kidding? Yeah. What's his name? Mega Superman? It's not Superman. It's Mega Man. I forget what the... The The, the doll? Yeah, I forget what the doll's name is. Man. Well, that's a... I enjoyed it. It's a good movie. Didn't they have, um, what's that guy's name? The guy that's wife killed him. Oh, yeah. uh, Phil Hartman. Phil Hartman, yeah. Yeah, he's the creepy neighbor who's trying to... Man, what a movie. Schwarzenegger's wife, yeah. Yep. That took place in Minneapolis. Did it? Yeah. Huh. In the Mall of America? I believe there's a scene there. Whenever the, like, remember when there's like that montage where they're trying to go everywhere and they're they're sold out everywhere? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. That would be, That's why I'm so so glad. What a time to be alive in the world of Amazon. I don't have to go to the store at all. And I'm happy about it. I feel like you heard about that so much in the 90s. Like, there's a Christmas toy every year. That was like the big thing. Yeah, like, like Furbies. Furbies, Tamagotchis. Yeah, and nobody could find them. Now it's just like you click on your phone and it shows up at your door. That still happens, though. You don't know so much because you don't have a child. No. But like LOL dolls were hard. Those little fingerling things were a big thing. They're just something that sticks on your finger. Evie plays with that crap for like two minutes and then it's done. <laughs> but like, it's not on. just one doll. They have like multiple. Yeah. 
Yeah, but yeah. they have like the LOL dolls. They have the big ones and then the little little babies. Uh, the big dolls are harder to find for some reason. Huh. I don't know. Are they expensive? They're like $10 for a ball and then you get to unwrap it. It's all about the unwrapping. She loves watching YouTube and watching people. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And then she's like, I got to get my collector's guide and see if I got a special edition. (laughs) Like you're five. (laughs) Click the links below. Click like and comment below. Like you don't even have, you don't even have a YouTube account. She knows how to do that too. She knows how to use my phone better than I do. Whenever she's two, I have videos of her saying, hey, Siri. Yeah. Well, hopefully none of our series pop up. But, yeah, crazy. Yeah. Yeah, a bunch of people in cars just like, shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Sorry. <laughs> That's funny. All right. Thursday. We got off on a tangent yeah, that was there. A, Christmas. <laughs> took a beeline to nowhere. Yeah. Fa la 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 la. All right. Thursday, March 25th. FBI ultimatum. 10 to 20 people must leave by 4 p.m. or some action will be taken. At 4 p.m., armored vehicles must, or I'm sorry, armored vehicles move into the compound and remove motorcycles and go-karts. Hmm. I want to live at this compound. Kind yeah, of. maybe I get why they didn't leave. They got go-karts. They do got go-karts. Hmm. hmm. I get it now. I get it. It all makes sense. Friday, March 26th. Lights, music, and helicopter activity occur throughout the night. The FBI issues another ultimatum. And armored vehicles begin clearing the front side of the compound. Saturday, March 27th. No conversations with Koresh for the third straight day. Sunday, March 28th. Uh, another FBI ultimatum. At 12.26 p.m., Koresh says that he had no intention to die and he was waiting for a word from God. A call from Dick DeGarren is patched through into the compound. A videotape is sent out of the compound that shows 19 children looking... Tired but healthy. Yeah, because you're playing fucking music in all hours of the night. Yeah. And in that docu or in the mini series that we'll talk about later, the screaming rabbits that they played, mm-hmm. that's terrifying. They played a lot. They played like dolphin sounds. Like yeah. All kinds terrifying. of weird shit. Terrifying. Yeah. I could not know. And the Christmas music, whatever. But that's why again, that falls on the parents. Yeah. Like they're Ugh. I mean it kills if, me. Yeah. That's you got to do what's best for your kid. At that point, I wouldn't even care about me. I'd be like, "Right, this kid is like miserable. Yeah. Like, he can't get any sleep. It's freezing at night. Yeah. Monday, March 29th. Over the objections of the assistant U.S. attorneys and Texas Rangers, Jamar decides to allow a face-to-face meeting between Koresh and DeGarren. For almost two hours in the afternoon, the two men met at the door of the compound. Tuesday, March 30th. There are two more meetings between Koresh and DeGarren. Wednesday, March 31st. How many are you going to let me read? Sorry. <laughs> I appreciate it. I like talking. March Richard, the de- Deputy Assistant Attorney General representing Reno, holds meetings in Waco and San Antonio to look into Waco officials in fighting. DeGarren reports to Jamar that he is frustrated in his attempt to negotiate Koresh's surrender. Tuesday, April 1st. Richard reports his findings to Reno. She assigns Ray Jan as the lead prosecutor and coordinator of the case. DeGarren and Zimmerman spend the day inside the compound and tell Jamar that the Davidians will leave either April 2nd or 10th, uh, depending on their Passover observance. So that makes sense, I mm. guess. Religious. Phil Arnold and Jim Tabor, two independent religion experts, appear on the talk show, or on talk show host Ron Engelman's program. Interpreting the Book of Revelations as it applies to the standoff. 
Then you got Friday, April 2nd to Saturday, April 3rd. There's nothing, no events. Um, so they didn't come out. Yeah, like they, said. they lied. Yeah. Sunday, April 4th, the lawyers meet again with Koresh and reiterate that everyone will come out after Passover. Monday, the April 5th, they observe Passover. Tuesday, April 6th, despite complaints, the FBI continues broadcasting music throughout the night. So I'm sure that was a wonderful Passover. Yeah. With Christmas music. Um, Wednesday, April 7th, Koresh refuses to confirm an exit date. Potts and Floyd Clark, high-ranking FBI officials from Washington, are in Waco to discuss strategy, and HRT Commander Richard Rogers proposes a tear gas plan. Thursday, April 8th, again, was uneventful. And Friday, April 9th, Koresh sends a letter to the FBI saying that the heavens are calling you to judgment. Two experts analyzed the letters, and four others sent over the next few days. And conclude he was possibly was possibly a psychotic and had no intention of leaving voluntarily. The FBI finalizes plans to use tear gas and seeks Reno's approval. Can I Reno's just, approval? Sorry. Can I just say duh? Yeah, I think he's it's psychotic. Pretty yes. clear. Yeah, the guy thinks he's got it. It so. took you that many days to figure that out. <laughs> I just imagine them sitting like talking at night. Like, I don't think this guy's all there. <laughs> He might be crazy. Son of a bitch. This guy might be insane. <laughs> we would have just figured this out earlier. Just clicks in their head. Ah. Like, God dang it. <laughs> Turns out he's crazy the whole time. <laughs> Saturday, April 10th. HRT members start installing Concerta wire around the compound. Easter Sunday, April 11th. Fruitless negotiations take place with Schneider over the possible exit of three more Davidians who decide against it. Tom McClarty, White House Chief of Staff, discusses Waco with Clinton, who refers to his experience as governor in dealing with the standoff at Fort Chafee. Chafee? Chafe? Chafe? Yeah. I've heard it before. Yeah, I'm sure. Don't judge me, people. <laughs> Monday, April 12th. At high-level meetings, Sessions, Hubble, and other justice and FBI officials present the, plan, the tear gas plan to Reno for approval. At first, she asked repeatedly, "Why not now? Or why now? Why why not wait?" But then she becomes convinced that other action is needed. The tear gas plan is con- presented to Reno, not as an all-out assault, but as, as a tactic where gas will be inserted in stages, initially only into one small area of the compound. The goal is to allow the exit through the uncontaminated portions of the compound. Reno also asks whether it would be possible to cut off the water supply to the compound. Hmm. Well. I kind of get her point. Why now? Why not wait? Because you're already in it this many days. Right. But I guess when will the end day ever come? Why would they want to cut off the water supply? Just to make them uncomfortable, I would guess. Okay. Just like the cutting off the power. Oh. It just makes it inconvenient. So they're not talking about talking about the tear gas plan and then also making sure the water's cut off, right? Because that would be a conspiracy. That would be a little fishy. I think, yeah, I, I was thinking that, but I think it's just, I think she was trying to think of alternatives. Like, so the she electricity. was like, she was like, can we cut off the water? And yeah. they're like, not tear gas. Oh, and then she's like, but we could do water too. Yeah. <laughs> right. She's trying to not do the tear gas. Yeah. But yeah, if for what's to come, I don't know if, I don't think they actually did shut off the water. I don't think they did. Oh. But if they did, then that's, that's terrible. Yeah. They had a plan. Tuesday, April 13th, for most of the afternoon, Koresh bombards the negotiators over the phone with what they call my favorite, Bibble Babble. Bible? Bib- <laughs> <laughs> they almost had it. 
Oh, shit. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like Bibble Babble, too. <laughs> I can say it however I want. Bibble Babble. Bible Babble. Sound like a baby. That's tough. Bibble Babble. <laughs> Bible Babble. There you go. No, I'm messing Nailed it up it. in my mind. Okay. <laughs> Reiterating that he is not coming out until God tells him to do so. Hubble meets for 45 minutes in White House counsel Bernard Nussbaum's office with um, top Clinton aides. Bruce Lindsay and Vince Foster uh, to discuss the CS gas plan and advise Clinton. This is said to be the most likely date of a meeting that occurred sometime during the week. So they don't really know if it happened on Tuesday, but they're just assuming that it happened on the, the 13th. Right. Hubble backs FBI's action plan, citing negotiations impasse and need to pull the HRT back for training. Nussbaum reports to Clinton, telling him that Waco is a matter for the Justice Department to handle. Wednesday, what? Were you going to say something? I was just going to say, so basically he's kind of given them the go to do whatever they f- see fit. Right. Kind of put them in their hands. Mm-hmm. Wednesday, April 14th. A message from Koresh says that he will not surrender until he has written a manuscript explaining the seven seals. At a meeting in Sessions' office on the tear gas plan, two military experts and the Army's Dr. Harry Salem brief Reno, detailing what is known about the effects on children. He says, as there has been no laboratory test performed on children relative to the effects of gas, anecdotal evidence was convincing that there would be no permanent injury. So basically, he has no idea. Right. He's just saying, I don't think it'll hurt him. Might not. Yeah. Maybe not. It might, but it also might not. Wonder what dehydration does to children. Wonder what <laughs> severe cold nights do to children. Give them, yeah. like, pneumonia. Blaring, screaming animals yeah, at 3 a.m. I'm sure that has positive effects on the yeah, mind. Yeah, geez. Clark's That's the CYA is what that is. Yeah. Clark says the Davidians might be running out of water. Reno asked the FBI to gather information about the compound's water supply and estimate how long the Davidians could hold out. FBI says rationing is to ensure discipline and provisions would last a year. Reno meets with Delta Force commanders to review the tear gas plan. The compound is stocked with a year's supply of food rations that was otherwise prepared to withstand an extended siege. Siege. Tuesday or Thursday, April 15th. FBI officials report that the compound has enough water to last a significant period of time. Hubble talks by phone for two hours with Sage, who argues for action. After talking to Sage, Hubble becomes convinced that the negotiators believe there is no further hope of getting the Davidians out through negotiation. Which I get, because if it hasn't happened by now, it's not. Right. Friday, April 16th. Koresh tells negotiators that he has completed the manuscript on the first seal. Reno rejects the tear gas plan, according to which Richard says Hubble told him. Sessions, Clark, and Potts hurry to Hubble's office, and Sessions asks to speak with Reno. Ten minutes later, Hubble returns with Reno, who orders a written statement describing the situation inside the compound, the progress of negotiations, and its merits of the plan, plus supporting documentation of factual assertions. Saturday, April 17th, Louis Alanis, who is not a Branch Davidian, but who sneaked into the compound earlier during the siege, leaves. Reno meets with Hubble, Sessions, Clark, and Potts, and other Justice Department officials and reviews the statement covering rules of engagement and supporting documents. Reno approves the FBI's tear gas plan, but gives the prepared material only a cursory review, leaving tactical decisions to those at Waco. 
So this girl snuck in there, but she wasn't a Davidian? Lewis, it's a dude. Oh, sorry. Sorry, Lewis. But I'm sure you're listening to this. <laughs> yeah, what the hell is wrong with you? Why would you do... if Lewis, if you're listening, get a hold of us, because I got some questions. So wait, he... It says during the siege he snuck in. Yeah, so he's the same as that other guy, only he didn't get shot. How the hell... But he's not a Davidian, so why is he there? Maybe just to be like, hey, sup? <laughs> what you guys doing? And then he waited <laughs> like 40 days. He's like, man, I'm tired of this shit. Like, it's cold. sleep. Playing his fucking dolphins at night. Like, Those go-karts kept me around for a while, but I'm out of here. <laughs> Maybe that's how he rode in. And now, like a Mario bitches, cart. I'm taking one of your carts. Just throwing bananas behind him. <laughs> All right. Sunday, April 18th. <laughs> Reno briefs Clinton on the CS gas plan, and the president concurs, but asks questions about assuring the children's safety and adds, it's your decision. Hubble and Lindsay are also in the loop. Armored vehicles clear Koresh's Chevy Camaro and other vehicles away from the front of the compound. Although the FBI warns the Davidians to stay out of the tower, they hold children up in the windows, and in one window hold a sign saying, flames await. Oh. Wow. Did you see, side note, little side note, but his, after all this happened, his Camaro sold at auction for $37,000. No. And guess who owns it now? Who? Just take a guess. Some, somebody you love. Sylvester Stallone? No. Think Travel Channel, someone you love. Oh, <laughs> Zach Baggins. Yep, he owns it now. He's going to take me for a ride on it. What a weird guy. That's interesting. Yep. Monday, April 19th. At 5.59 a.m., Sage telephones the Davidians, knowing, fi- notifying them of an imminent tear gas assault. Sage reads a message over the loudspeaker advising the Davidians that they're under arrest and should come out. At 6.02 a.m., two FBI combat engineering vehicles, or CEVs, begin inserting gas into the compound through spray nozzles attached to a boom. At 6.04 a.m., the Davidians start shooting, and the FBI begin deploying Bradley vehicles to insert ferret sounds through the... Oh, ferret sounds. That's terrifying. (laughs) Ferret ferret rounds through the windows. Yeah, that's scarier than ferret sounds. Um, at 6.31, the HRT reports that the entire building is being gassed. At about 7 a.m., Reno and senior advisors go to the FBI Situation Room. At 7.30, a CEV breaches the front side of the building on the first floor as it injects gas. And at 7.58 a.m., gas is inserted in the second floor of the back right corner of the building. Hmm. So much for, well, I guess they did it at- they said they're going to do it in sections, and I guess they did. They're about 30 minutes apart. Mm-hmm. The FBI calls for more gas from outside Waco. At, and at 9.20 a.m., 48 more ferret rounds arrive from Houston. At about 9.30 a.m., with the supply of ferret rounds dwindling, one CEV is having mechanical troubles, and the high winds are blowing the gas away. Another CEV begins enlarging the opening in the middle front of the building from which the Davidians could escape. And the third CEV with a boom but lacking... And the third CEV, with a boom but lacking any gas delivery system, breaches the rear side of the building to create an opening near the gymnasium. At about 11 a.m. Washington time, Reno talks to Clinton, saying everything seems to be going well, but leaves for a judicial conference in Baltimore at 11.30 a.m. The CEV, with, without a gas delivery system, breaches the back side of the compound, concentrating the back right corner near the warehouse gymnasium. At 11.40 a.m., the last ferret rounds are delivered. 
At 11.45 a.m., a wall on the rear side of the building collapses. At 12.07 p.m., the Divinians start simultaneous fires at three or four or three or more different locations within the compound. An HRT observer reports seeing a male starting a fire in the front of the building. At 12.12 p.m., Sage calls on Koresh to lead the Davidians out, of, out to safety. Nine Davidians flee the compound and are arrested. At about 12.25 p.m., the FBI hears systematic gunfire coming from the compound, leaving several agents the impression that the Davidians are either killing themselves or each other. At 12.41, firefighting efforts begin. HRT agents enter tunnels to search for survivors, especially children. In the afternoon, at an unspecified time, Hubble speaks to McLarty. After her appearance on ABC's television program, Nightline, Reno talks to Clinton again. Sometime in the mid-morning, an apparent deviation from the approved plan begins. The plan contemplated that the, that the building would not be dismantled for another 48 hours, and not all the people would come out. However, the CEVs began knocking holes in the compound the morning of the assault. The CEV, not equipped with a tear gas, knocks down another corner of the building and a portion of the roof collapse in order to clear out the path to the main tower so that other CEVs could insert gas into the area. So, I didn't, I didn't read anywhere that the, they were starting fires. The Davidians? Yeah. Yeah, that's what they tried to blame it on, is that they were going to set it all on fire. That they said the Davidians were going to do that? Yeah. But actually, it was the tear gas, right? That's, yeah. That's the, that's always been the fight, is did they start the fire or did the tear gas? Right. But, yeah. Um, Because apparently the tear gas is incendiary. Yeah. So if there's like a little spark, it'll light it all on fire. Mm -hmm. And it happened at a lot of other um, sieges like this one where they started with tear gas and stuff would catch on fire. Yeah. It's always the intent to light the tear gas or not light it, but insert the tear gas just to drive people out. But then it always people end up getting trapped and it catches fire. Yep. And they knew this going into it. They knew a lot of stuff. Yeah. So that ends the siege. Um, The death toll, uh, this is about the death toll and what the government investigation was after the fact. So in the end, 76 Branch Davidians were killed in the fire, including 21 children and two pregnant women. Most of them died from smoke inhalation. Now, this number, it depends on where you look and research this number because it fluctuates. So some people say that... Some of them were already dead. They were like they died even before the siege started. Um, so right. it, it goes from like the 80s to the 50s in yeah. death toll. Yeah, because I read somewhere it was 25 children. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it just depends. It on. just depends. Uh, the total number of Branch Davidians killed during the whole siege was 82. Some of the Branch Davidians recovered from the fire had gunshot wounds, including David Koresh, who was killed from a self inflicted gunshot wound to the head. So he took the coward's way out, pretty much. Yeah, all that, and then he Just doesn't even himself. die with his people. Yeah. That's the craziest part to me. Yep. He wants all these people to follow him, and then mm-hmm. he doesn't even... And you, th- Ugh, it just makes me so mad, because all those poor babies that died for no reason, mm-hmm. and uh, ugh, it just but again, sticks that's, with me. It's terrible that happened, but it's like it's almost as much the parents' fault as it is like the FBI mm-hmm. and all that because it's they had every opportunity to leave, 
one as a mother, you want to protect your child from anything. I gladly go to jail if that means that my daughter is going to be alive. Right. So, I don't know. On July 21st, 2000, after a 10-month investigation, U.S. Senator John Danforth issued a preliminary report exonerating the government and its agents. His report included that the federal agents did not start the fire, direct gunfire at the complex, or improperly employ U.S. armed forces. Danforth assigned responsibility for the tragedy to the Branch Davidians and David Koresh. According to the report, they contributed to the tragedy by refusing to exit the compound during the 51-day standoff, directing gunfire at FBI agents, shooting members of the compound, and ultimately setting the fire that burned down the compound. Which is true. Some of it. Some of it is true, yes. Danforth did find, however, that an FBI agent fired three... Pyrotechnic tear gas rounds at a concrete pit 75 feet from the living quarters of the compound. Although these rounds did not start the fire, government officials did not admit their use until August 1999, more than six years later. So they knew that they were wrong. Danforth found that this negligence was at best a mishandling of evidence and a, at worst, a criminal attempt to conceal the truth from investigators. Absolutely. Well, they also said that they people went on trial and said that they that the Davidians started the gunfire. Yeah. And then after after the fact, after all the trials were closed, the, somebody said the uh, agent shot at a dog. Mm-hmm. An ATF agent shot at a dog, and that's the what? other people. The other agents didn't know where it was coming from, so they just started fire. fire. Right. Which I get that. Yeah. It's And that happens sometimes. Those people should be held accountable for lying on the the stand. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is some, when all that's happening, I'm sure some of them didn't know. No. Unless you're right next to the guy. Yeah. Or like. Well, and even, right. So that they're. Maybe they weren't lying because they just didn't know. But one of them was because he come out later and said. Mm Mm-hmm. So. But yeah, if like, if all that starts at year one gunshot, then there's a million gunshots. You don't know where the, you're just thinking about now. You're not thinking about where the first one came from. Yeah. You're just trying to survive. And I wonder what would have happened if the he wouldn't have shot at that dog and the gunfire never happened. Would it have been a peaceful thing? I would think so. Thing? But because again, he did come out because that's how he got shot. He came out to talk to him and then they started opening up fire. Yeah. So, uh, it's just a bad Yeah, but they again, situation. they shouldn't have rolled up with all the weapons. Coming like that. in hot. Yeah. If, well, if you have 50 people with guns... Yeah. How you, you can't control all those people. I mean, they're just as scared as the people inside. Mm-hmm. So it's... That's true. I was watching that one interview with a... He was an ATF agent, and he was standing next to a kid, and he got shot. The ATF agent got shot, and he was the day before his 26th birthday. Oh, man. He got shot right in the head. Oh. Like, that's awful. Yeah, there was definitely bad things from both sides, and those people from the government, you know, they're not... Doing it because they just decided they were going to wake up this morning and start this fight. They were told to go, right, and be at that location. Yeah, I don't and think do they those had things. Any, they didn't have any malintentions. They no, just, I'm sure that's again. Those people were just trying to survive too. Mm-hmm. The government people. I mean, you're just you're thrust into the situation, and you you don't know what's happening. You're just trying to get out alive. Yep. Yeah. yeah, that's awful. All right. So, lost my note here. Okay. Um, What happened to the surviving Branch Davidians? Because, obviously, some of them did come out. 
Um, A federal grand jury indicted 12 of the surviving Branch Davidians, charging them with aiding and abetting in murder of federal officers, which I don't really think is all that fair, an unlawful possession and use of various firearms. Okay, I'll give them that one. (laughs) Eight Branch Davidians were convicted on firearms charges, five convicted of voluntary manslaughter, and four were acquitted of all charges. So, um, and then, you know, I was, whenever I was researching some stuff, there was a few conspiracy theories that, that popped up. I didn't really get into those too much because I don't really think there is, is any conspiracy theory. I think the government just didn't do the best that day. They had an off 51 day period. Right. And, um, some conspiracy theories, theorists say that it didn't happen. Those are the same people that probably say that the Holocaust didn't happen. Which, yeah, I don't know how. Yeah. It's crazy. But I had this in my notes, too, that Koresh was buried at Memorial Park Cemetery in Tyler, Texas, in the Last Supper section. Huh. Didn't know that was a thing. At, no. Uh, yeah. Um, several of his albums were released after the siege, including Voices of Fire in 1994, wonder if that's on Spotify. I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure it's not getting many listens. <laughs> yeah. And one other note I had is that Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols cited that the Mount Carmel Center raid was the motivation for the Oklahoma City bombing of April 9th, 1995. And it was time to coincide with the second anniversary of the Waco assault. That's crazy because I didn't know that. Yeah. That all this, I mean, this has definitely caused a ripple effect mm-hmm. for years to come of what devastation. Created distrust with the government, because that was a government building. Mm-hmm. So that's, yeah. So it's kind of like, yeah, Ruby Ridge and then this, and then they all are connected, which mm-hmm. is pretty wild. Because I'm pretty sure that's still one of the deadliest bombings. It might be the deadliest bombing in American history. Yeah. The Oklahoma City one. Yeah. It'll, you, I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of oh, it, but it, man. Because that one... Um, hit a daycare center mm-hmm. too, and I just can't. I can't do it. Yeah, well, that one. It's that was a car bomb, and it ripped. It's like the building just fell in half. Like mm-hmm. it's it's ridiculous that something man-made could do that because it just to took, innocent people. Yeah, well, it just took away. It looks like a building was chopped in half. Mm-hmm. Like it's ridiculous. All from chemicals. Right. They all they made it themselves. They parked outside, and then all that just from two people. Terrible. Um, we're going to talk about the Netflix miniseries next. So if you haven't watched it, I recommend it. Um, yeah, it was very good. It was very well done. But if you haven't watched it, stop listening to us right now. Go watch it and then come back and listen to this. It only takes six hours. There's some spoil. Hey, I watched it in like two days. I did too. Because it's addicting. You got to know. Even though it's just like Titanic. Like I went to go see Titanic three times in the theater. Did you really? Yeah. <laughs> But he couldn't get enough Jack and but Rose. But we all, <laughs> and he could have fit on that board too. <laughs> Just saying. That's another episode. That's another whole episode of yeah. conspiracy theory. Yeah. Um, that I believe in. That's hilarious. But we all know what happens at the end. Yeah. I don't know why we continue watching the same thing over and over again. Just like these podcasts, but. It's addicting almost. It's interesting to see the mindset of people that were in it, mm-hmm. I think, is the... Well, it's like a story. It's like any story. You don't yeah. read it for the ending. You read it for the... Well, and, and in this miniseries, I did not know what was portrayed 
that I read about this siege mm-hmm. was not what I saw in that miniseries. There was a lot of things that opened my eyes to kind of be more on the Davidian side of things. Mm. I know you feel differently, so yeah. we're going to battle royale. But uh, um, it's you can't really pick a side. There's definitely things that went wrong on both sides. Yeah. Um, so for me, the most the thing I, I just cannot get out of my head is it so shows in you know at the end when they start putting the tear gas in the building, they are um, held up all the women and children in a cooler trying to stay safe. They do have some gas masks which they disperse to people. Not everybody has one, though. Mm-hmm. And uh, a mother and her child are in this cooler. The mother has the gas mask on. The daughter does not. And they start dying of smoke inhalation. Well, at first they got in the cooler because the gas wasn't getting in there. Yeah. And then the F- or the agents saw that from a heat signature, that's where everybody was gathering. Yeah, and they put a... A boom in there and lit them up um, with gas. So you just, the daughter dies from asphyxiation pretty Mm -hmm. much. And the mother is laying next to her dead daughter and she just takes off her mask and suffocates. Yeah. Well, I don't know if you said that whenever the boom came in, it knocked stuff outside the cooler down so they couldn't get out. Right. Which they didn't. No, I didn't mention that. So they couldn't get out. They were stuck in there. They tried to get out and they were stuck. And I think that's probably the big part of that that just tears me up inside is uh, you can't, there's nothing you can do. I mean, for me, I think, I think about what I would do in that situation. Probably would have put the mask on my child. I'm sure that they put the mask on themselves so that they could direct the children out to safety. Um, but they weren't. I don't know if you read. I was reading some report that there's no gas masks that will fit children. Like you can't even buy. They don't make gas masks for kids. Well, I'd be holding it on. Yeah, but it's not going to fit. Like it sucks to your face. Yeah. yeah. So it would get in from the sides. Ugh, it's They're made it's for just, adult. I just – that image, um, there, it was very – profound to me and stuck with me and is still with me and I watched it last week and it still makes me very upset Mm -hmm. like I can't get it out of my mind I don't even like to think about it I actually get teary eyed right now thinking about it it's just uh, awful awful but that's again they didn't that's where they didn't mean to do that. Which no, they just I, meant I know. To. And if they would have got left all the chances that they had to leave, this wouldn't have happened. But at that point, they were actually scared to death, wanted to leave, and they could not. I don't even know if they could have gotten out, if they would have went outside, or what they would have done. But it's just um, again, an eerie visual. Yeah, it's for very me to see. It's <laughs> it makes you when you're watching it feel hopeless because that's what they were. They had no. Yeah way to get out, which is terrible. But again, if they would have just left any of the 50 days, mm-hmm. they would be fine. Yep. But then that's, yeah, I don't know. It's hard to put into words what, or it's hard to, I don't know. It's hard to think about what they're thinking. Yeah. Because the obviously time. they were, they have very different mindsets. Uh huh. But again, if they would have just left, they would have been fine. Yeah. So let's get into, um, so basically what we're going to do is talk about what was shown in the miniseries and how that pertains to real life and, um, and, and how it all coincides together. And the Netflix, uh, 
series shows federal agents taking over a home across from the Branch Davidian compound and one of them making it inside to converse with Koresh and others on several occasions. He then tries to warn the federal authorities that the Branch Davidians know they're coming and urges them to call off the raid. However, the ATF officials refused and go and went ahead with what turns out to be a fatal and ill-fated standoff. The series also makes it appear that Koresh and the other Davidians don't deal in illegal firearms. So what's the report say, Jordan? Uh, 19, June 1992, the Austin, Texas office of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms opened a formal investigation into allegations that Koresh and his followers were in possession of illegal firearms and explosive devices. So it's all allegations. Right. They didn't have anything to go off of, really. Yep. The report says that in January 1993, ATF agents did, in fact, commence an undercover operation in a small house directly across from the property on which the Branch Davidians lived. They posed as students in real life, and one agent met with Koresh several times, expressing expressing an interest in their religious beliefs. The ATF used evidence from this operation to receive an arrest warrant for Koresh and a warrant to search the compound from a federal judge. The agent in question was named Jacob Vasquez in the show, but was named Robert Rodriguez in real life. The series focuses on allegations against Koresh relating only to one of his wives, who was underage when he had a child with her. The conversation about Texas law allowing marriage to a 14-year-old with parental consent, but not to two people at once, polygamy, and without marriage, the sexual relations were illegal, a catch-22. What the report says, um, the report says authorities learned of numerous allegations that Koresh had um, sexual relations with girls younger than 16 years of age. Uh, It says that it's clear that Koresh sexually abused minor females at the residence, in addition to having consensual sexual relations with several of the adult females who lived there, pretty much all of them. Mm -hmm. A number of former Davidians provided affidavits detailing these sexual relations, including the sexual abuse involving minor females. The report says there was no direct evidence that children were being abused during the time frame of the standoff. I mean, they were, though. Yeah. By the agents. Yeah. Um, The show doesn't get into some of the more bizarre aspects of Koresh's world. According to the New York Times, Koresh told the children that they should only call him their father and refer to their parents as dogs. That's weird. Uh, In addition, girls who were as young as 11 were given a plastic star of David, which meant they could have sex with Koresh because they had the light. In quotations. (laughs) So he gave them a sticker. Yeah. Here's your sticker. Ugh. What a doof. The children were disciplined with a paddle, and the compound had no running water or plumbing, the Times reported, adding there was no formal schooling. Hmm. That, I didn't know that last part. That's I sick. I didn't either. Ew. What a... Ugh. Yeah. That's awful. He was the only one in that whole thing who kind of deserved what he got, I think. But all these people are just as crazy because they followed him. I know, and let that happen. Yeah, figure... No. He comes up to your daughter and is like, here's a star. Now we can have sex together. Like, I'm going to punch you in the face. Yeah, you better do. get the fuck back. Who shot first? The series shows, we kind of talked about it before, um, but this is more concrete. The series shows the federal authorities making the first move to provoke the shootout, killing dogs, and then gunfire erupts and shoots Koresh when he comes out in an attempt to make peace with his hands up. 
what the report says, on February 28, 1993, a force of 76 ATF agents stormed the Davidian residence to serve the arrest and search warrants. Conflicting evidence on this point was presented to the subcommittees by the ATF agents who were involved in the raid. The Texas Ranger who conducted an investigation into the events of the raid following the end of the standoff on April 19th and by the attorneys for the Davidians. Um, One ATF agent testified that Koresh did come to the door dressed in black camo fatigues. Um, He says as he closed the door before he reached the door, one agent reached the door. That's a lot of door reaching. Um, (laughs) And at the point that it was when the door and at that point is when the doors erupted with gunfire coming from inside. It was 10 seconds or more before we fired back. Then how do you know he was in camo fatigues if you didn't see him? Hmm. Hmm. Guy's got some potholes in the story. That is here. a good question. Mm-hmm. Like shooting was from the inside. He's wearing all black stuff. But <laughs> I didn't see I could... him. In my mind, he was it wearing was camo. <laughs> I can't see camo. What is black camo anyway? Camo that's black, I would assume. Yeah, but I don't know. Like you know, the gray and black. Yeah, but like that doesn't make any sense. Hmm. None of it does. Um, the Texas Rangers who conducted an Investigation concurred, said one Captain David Burns. He said, I believe the evidence was to me overwhelming in the trial that the, the, the Davidians fired first. The cameraman and the reporter, although very reluctantly, finally, I believe, con- conceded that. He had, broadcast, he had broadcast that several times. He was more or less a hostile witness, but in my mind, there's no doubt who fired first. He wrong. In the show, there's just one cameraman whose videotape goes missing. The report does not describe the latter occurring. The report says the Davidians' attorneys believe that the gun battle erupted because of an accidental discharge by one of the ATF agents. The report concludes it is. It appears more likely, however, that the Davidians fired first as the ATF agents began to enter the residence. I would like that what happened in the miniseries wasn't true because that means they shot and killed dogs, which I'm not a fan of. Yeah, it's not good any. Yeah. So where's these dogs at? I don't know. They never mentioned dogs again at all. No. So there might not even have been dogs there. I hope not. I hope they're safe. I didn't read anything about dogs anywhere. Yeah. Um, says the report says no evidence was found that anyone fired from the helicopter hovering overhead, although the Davidians' attorneys reported seeing bolt holes in the roof. According to Frontline, who... Who shot first is still disputed. ATF agents who participated in the raid have testified in court and at a congressional hearing that the Davidians fired first. Right after the raid, however, one ATF agent told an investigator that a fellow agent may have fired first when he killed a dog outside the compound. Oh. The, the agent later retracted the statement, saying that the Branch Davidians had initiated the gunfire. Surviving Branch Davidians have maintained that they did not shoot their guns until fired upon. Because it's not like they were sitting there ready, locked and loaded, ready to go. Well, if you see people coming down the drive with well, guns, guys pointed, like guns pointed at you. I well, mean. the next one that we're going to talk about is were they tipped off. So if they were tipped off, I could see where they would be ready to, mm. you know, be prepared and have their guns ready. Yeah. 
The series shows the Davidians being tipped off by a postal worker who was asked by a cameraman for directions to the compound. Koresh limits that authorities could have just grabbed him when he was jogging or otherwise outside the compound. Um, it says that the Davidians did learn about the ATF's raid in advance. The report says that the Davidians learned of the ATF plan to raid their residence when a local television cameraman happened to get lost on his way to the Branch Davidian residence. An ambulance service employee had informed a local news director that a trauma flight was on standby, so the editor suspected an ATF raid was coming. The cameraman spoke to David Jones, a Branch Davidian, and a letter carrier with the U.S. Postal Service and mentioned a raid was coming not knowing he was a Davidian. Jones then warned the Branch Davidians of the looming raid. And then it says, as the agents arrived at the Davidian residence, the Davidians engaged the ATF agents in a gun battle, which continued for almost 90 minutes, um, indicating that the shootout left four ATF agents dead and more than 20 others wounded. In addition, the ATF killed two Davidians and wounded Koresh in the initial gun battle, which we knew. Uh, The report lays the blame at Koresh's feet. But for the criminal... It says, for the criminal conduct and aberrational behavior of David Koresh and other Davidians, the tragedies that occurred in Waco would not have occurred. The ultimate responsibility for the deaths of the Davidians and the four federal law and gate agents, I'm sorry, lies with Koresh. So they basically put all the blame on him. Mm-hmm. Like pretty, you do. Pretty easy to put the blame on a person that can't yeah. respond. Yep. The report calls the plan uh, significantly flawed. The plan was poorly conceived, utilized a high-risk tactical approach when other tactics could have been used more successfully. Um, it was drafted by ATF agents who were less qualified than other available agents and used agents who were not sufficiently trained to handle the operation. Additionally, ATF commanders did not take precautions to ensure that the plan would not be discovered. So basically, they let them know they were coming. Mm-hmm. It finds fault with the ATF tactics, saying the agency exercised extremely poor judgment and could have just arrested Koresh outside the compound. The report concludes that the senior ATF raid commanders, Philip Kajanaki, why do I always get the hard names, and Chuck (laughs) Sarabin, either knew or should have known that the Davidians had become aware of the impending raid and were likely to resist with deadly force. Nevertheless, they recklessly proceeded with the raid, thereby endangering the lives of the ATF agents under their command and the lives of those residing in the compound. This, more than any other factor, led to the death of the four ATF agents killed on February 28th. ATF agents misrepresented to the Defense Department officials that the Branch Davidians were involved in any illegal or in, in illegal drug manufacturing, the report says. I've never heard about drugs. No, I haven't either. Drugs and guns go together like boats and hose. <laughs> uh, negotiations with David Eans and negotiator Gary Nessner. The series focuses a lot of screen time to the negotiator for the FBI who tries to talk Koresh into surrendering and slowly secures the release of dozens of children. The series shows that the FBI also used psych- psychological techniques such as blasting bright lights and music, music horns and honking into the compound. The series shows Koresh promising to surrender after finishing a religious manuscript, but the FBI moving ahead before he has completed it. The show focuses a lot of time on FBI lead investigator Gary Nessner, and it was based on Gary Nessner's book, Stalling for Time, My Life as an FBI Hostage Negotiator. 
In real life, Nessner was involved in the twenty in the standoff for twenty five days as, as a negotiator and was pulled off because he wasn't seen as being aggressive enough. The report says that it is true that the FBI sent members to of its hostage rescue team to Waco and took charge of the situation. The standoff lasted fifty one days, and the day, there were daily negotiations between the FBI and Davidians. Eventually, thirty five people, including twenty one children, did not or did leave the compound. And surrender. According to the report, tactics included cutting off electricity to the residents, but at one point shining bright lights into the resident and playing loud, irritating sounds over loudspeakers. If you're him, you gotta you gotta try uh, watching it on TV after you get sent home. It probably is a punch to the gut, mm-hmm. but at least he's got that knowledge that he saved some of them. Right, better than not, nobody. Yeah. yeah. The report does say that officials in real life closed their minds to continued negotiation when presented with evidence of a possible negotiated end following completion of Koresh's work on interrupting the seven seals of the Bible. It's true that Koresh maintained he was working on a manuscript and would then surrender. The report says, but FBI officials thought it was just a stall tactic when they were already at like, what, 50 days and he had just finished the first seal. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it took him a while. Yeah, he said it was only going to be a week. And yeah, then, and it took him a week to write one seal, and he's got six more to do. Well, and they asked him for portions of it just to show he was actually doing it, yeah. and he refused. Yep. Um, Neusner wasn't really at Ruby Ridge, according to the Smithsonian, which quoted him as saying that as a negotiator, he expected that Koresh wouldn't live up to every promise. But at Waco, our on-scene commander and the tactical commander took those behaviors in a very negative way. Um, He said that they would take actions that would only ratchet things up with David. So it was a very complex tragedy. The use of gas and the role of Attorney General Janet Reno. The show shows a chemical agent being pumped into the compound, which then catches fire, killing many win- men, women, and children. Uh, it also shows the Attorney General, Janet Reno, giving the green light for the operation, what the report says. During the week of April 12th, Reno senior Justice Department officials and FBI officials met to end the standoff. They proposed a plan centered around the use of chemical riot control agent, which would be injected through the walls of the Davidian residence in order to induce the residents to leave the structure. The report says it provided a methodical insertion of riot control agent into different parts of the building over a 48-hour period. Reno approved the plan April 19, 1993. The report describes how it unfolded. At approximately 6 a.m. on April 19th, the FBI's chief investigator, or chief negotiator, I'm sorry, Byron Sage, telephoned that the Davidians and informed them that the FBI was inserting a riot control agent into the residence. Sage also began broadcasting a prepared statement over loudspeakers that the FBI was placing tear gas in the building and that all residents should leave. As the announcement was being made, FBI agents used unarmed military vehicles with booms mounted on them and began to insert the riot control agent into the compound by ramming holes into the sides of the structure and then using device mounted on the booms to spray the riot control agent into the holes of the walls. Almost immediately, the Davidians began to fire on the vehicles being used in the FBI or used by the FBI. At 6:07 a.m., the commander of the hostage rescue team ordered that the contingency provision of the operations plan be implemented, and that the riot control agent be inserted into all portions of the residence at once. During six hours of insertion, during these six hours of insertion, the riot control agent 
no uh, residents exited the compound. Yeah, and the series doesn't show the Davidians firing on any authorities at that point when they start spraying the tear gas. Right. Um, the report contains harsh criticism for Reno. The decision by Attorney General Janet Reno to approve the FBI's plan to end the standoff on April 19th was premature, wrong, and highly irresponsible. In authorizing the assault to proceed, Attorney General Reno was seriously neglect. Oh, ne- negligent. Um, the Attorney General knew or should have known that the plan to end the standoff would endanger the lives of the Davidians inside the residence, including the children. It concludes that the FBI failed to demonstrate sufficient concern for the presence of young children, pregnant women, and the elderly, and those with respiratory conditions, at the, um, and that the injection of gas into the compound could have been a proximate cause of or directly resulted in some or all of the deaths attributed to, 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 attributed to asphyxiation in the autopsy reports. Um, according to the Washington Post, the surveillance videotape shows an assistant special agent can be heard authorizing the use of military tear gas cartridge in an attempt to penetrate the entrance to an underground storm shelter that was about 50 yards from the main compound structure. Yeah, that's why like it doesn't show them shooting. Yeah. That's why I don't like some of these series. Because it's one-sided. There's always a, yeah, there's always a narrative that's yeah. trying to be pushed. Same thing with all documentaries. Yeah. Like, because they could be, I'm sure they're giving you information, but they are all trying to make you think something. Well, yeah. That's the, what are we doing here with this podcast? We're just giving facts. I'm trying to tell these people <laughs> that I'm sad that this happened. Well, yeah, it's terrible, but I mean, I don't know. It's just, I don't really like, the miniseries was good, but it's still, it's not going to show you, need, you everything. No, and you need to take it for what it is. It's a miniseries. It's It's not, yeah. yeah, it's based on actual events, but it's not all of the events. Right. And that's what you have to think of whenever you're doing anything or right. listening to anything. We're probably missing stuff all the time. Yeah, but I don't know. They just seem to have a different, they don't include everything. Yeah. The problem is, is the people that take it for real truth yeah truth when it's just uh for like entertainment yeah like they're watching it actually happen mm-hmm. right yep all right the fires and deaths inside the compound including the cause of death for david koresh the series shows the fire ignite the compound well, that was weird my siri just happened one moment what all right don't tell me what to do siri <laughs> uh the series shows the fire ignite the in the compound after gas is ingested into the into it by the government, and shows Steve Schneider, Koresh's right-hand man, take Koresh's life before killing himself. The series implies that the other people who died inside the compound died from the blaze or gas. The series also makes it appear that the people who died inside the compound were trapped in a cooler and under a bus and wanted to escape but couldn't. Uh Uh-oh. Are they going to ruin me right now? What the report says. The report (laughs) says the fire broke out at 12.07 p.m., and then within two minutes, two other fires developed, and only took eight minutes before the three fires engulfed the entire structure. The report says the largest group of bodies, or the yeah, the largest group of bodies recovered after the fire were found in the area of residence commonly known as the gun room or bunker. Uh, if the gas went directly into the bunker, w- was not clear. It didn't cause the deaths of those in. Wait, what? It was not clear. It did not cause the deaths of those inside of it. The report says, according to the report, sounds of gunfire broke out, and none of them were methodical and evenly spaced, indicating that deliberate. The deliberate firing of weapons. 
Nine people escaped, and of the 19 who perished, and nine, oh, 19 of those who perished died from gunshots at close range. Huh. I didn't have that in my original notes. So, yeah, the report says... They shot themselves. Yeah. But then the rest died from smoke inhalation. Wonder if that was all the men. I don't know. It doesn't say. Um, they were either self-inflicted or by other Davidians, the report says. Uh, the remote possibility of accidental discharge from... Oh. No. Rounds exploding in the fire. I don't think so, though. It had to be really hot to... Explode around. Yeah. And be that close to... Like, that's... It's not going to hit somebody in the head. Like, right. Oh, that's terrible, though, if that's true. I mean, the report says... Jordan. That's true. This is the report. Um, the series only shows Snyder and Koresh dying from gunshots, with Schneider killing Koresh and then committing suicide. According to the New York Times, in real life, Koresh was found dead of a bullet wound in the center of his forehead, but authorities didn't say whether he was killed or committed suicide. They couldn't determine that because of where or because his body was burned so badly. See, I think because in my notes that I took, I, I said that he killed himself. That makes more sense to me. That he killed that, himself. Yeah. Well, it depends. It doesn't say where Schneider's body was found. If they were, like, right, right next to each other, right. then it makes sense. But yeah, it makes sense in the miniseries, but we know we can't use that as fact. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, says the report says there's no evidence that FBI agents fired their guns towards the compound. The report accuses the Davidians of setting fires. Some of the Davidians intentionally set the fires inside the residence. There's no evidence that the FBI intentionally or inadvertently set the fires. Well, how are you going to have evidence that they inadvertently did something? That doesn't make sense. <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> counterintuitive there. Well, they didn't do it intentionally or by accident. Yeah, but that's stupid to say. <laughs> the ex- didn't intentionally or accidentally. <laughs> the experts testified that they believe the fires were intentionally set by the Branch Davidians in order to destroy the structure. Supporting this conclusion is the fact that the first or the fire review team found that a number of accelerants were present in the structure and on clothing of some of the surviving Davidians, including gasoline, kerosene, Coleman fuel, and other accelerants. Because no fireball was observed until well after the fire had become established, the subcommittees conclude that methylene chloride did not cause the fire. So now they're saying that the tear gas did not cause the fire, but it's just the same with the bullets. So you're going to tell me that it was because of exploding rounds. Oh, they didn't say that. They said it could have been. Okay. But and then you're I gonna, highly doubt that. But then you're not going to say, well, there was, I mean, they had gasoline and kerosene and crap in the facility because that's how they were. Yeah, they had generators. Yeah, keeping stuff, keeping from freezing to death. I don't know. Something sounds fishy to me. And it says, one committee member disagreed, writing, I believe that there's also a possibility that the fire, or at least some of the fires, may have been caused as a result of the demolishing efforts of the armored military vehicles. Because all it takes is one spark, one right? One spark, yeah. I mean, yeah. In addition, in a break from the show, the report says that Davidians could have escaped the residence for a significant period of time after the start of the fire. Most of the Davidians either did not escape attempt to escape from the residence or were prevented from escape by other Davidians. So really, it sounds as though there's nobody trapped. Mm-hmm. I don't believe it. As for government accountability, the report says that 
the Treasury Department officials failed to properly supervise ATF activities leading to the raid. The report also indicates that the department terminated the employment of two senior raid commanders, Philip um, and Charles. They were both rehired by the ATF, but not in supervisory capacity, the former of which the report criticizes. According to Frontline, some surviving Branch Davidians in the insist that they did not start the fire, but a panel of arson investigators disagreed. Hmm. According to Frontline, the feds really did bug the milk cartons, which I don't know if we mentioned. Oh, Whenever yeah. Whenever they sent the milk in for the killed kids, they put listening devices on them yep. so they could hear what's going on. Which is smart. Yeah, it is smart. I mean, if you're going to give them something, might as well get something out of it. Yep. Uh, it says they really did bug the milk cartons, and they obtained audio of conversations that led them to believe the Davidians set fires. A portion of that reads, uh, the first Davidian said, start the fire, and the second Davidian said, got some fuel around here, and the third Davidian says, right here. Hmm. Which I don't know, that was way... Before yeah, any of that. it doesn't make any sense. That sounds very fake. I mean, that could be start a fire because we're cold? Yeah, that's that happened like day like 20 that yeah. they gave him milk. Um, all right, so David Theobald and Michelle Jones. Thibodeau. Shit. You murdered that one. Not even I close. I like Theobald. <laughs> Thibodeau. Thibodeau. They said his name like a million times in the show. I know. Thibodeau. Theobald. <laughs> uh, damn. Okay, David Thibodeau. Nice. Was a real person. And the show Koresh is shown enticing him to live at the compound after asking him to drum a set with his band. Thibodeau. <laughs> Taking time with it. I like it. Is then asked to marry one of Koresh's wives to protect the Branch Davidian leader from claims he had sexual relations with the woman when she was underage. Um, what the report says is that Thibodeau lived at the Branch Davidian residence, but did not consider himself to be a member of the Branch Davidian religious community. Hmm. So, okay. Just homeless, basically. Okay. So, if you don't even believe in this stuff, you're going to stay around for that long? <laughs> I don't. Hell no. Yeah, that's crazy. But again, go-karts. You know, go-karts. That'll get me to stay. That was the sticking point. <laughs> They got drum set and go-karts. I'm fucking in. Right. Um, it indicates that he did testify before Congress. Congress. Uh, Congress. I don't know what's wrong with me today. <laughs> and it shows in the series. I'm trying to work on not saying my S's yeah, you, so you much. Yeah, you those, yep. Because, you know. Um, according to the Dallas Observer, the real Thibodeau did meet Koresh while playing music with him. He did move into the compound, and he did escape from it. Um, the Netflix series was based in part on his book, Waco or Survivor Story, which I would like to read. Yeah, I'd like to read the Nestor one too, the Negotiator. Mm-hmm. That'd be interesting because I'm sure he's got a lot of other ones, the Negotiator, mm-hmm. except for, you know, in addition to this one. Right. So, um, in 2018, he was living in Maine. It's true that he was one of only nine people to escape the blaze. So... Um, I just want people, want the people inside to be humanized, said Thibodeau, according to the Smithsonian. They died for what they believed in, whether you believe that or not. To me, they're martyrs. They shouldn't be, they shouldn't just be demonized and hated. The Smithsonian reports that Thibodeau met Koresh in real life at a guitar center. 
Huh. Thibodeau doesn't believe that the Branch Davidian started the fire, according to that site. <laughs> I just, I don't know, the Guitar Center is like so such a normal place. Yeah. I didn't <laughs> like, hey, even... you trying to join a cult? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know they had Guitar Centers that long ago. Yeah, I guess. That's, huh. that's another thing like uh, the Disney... Disneyland. Yeah. Yeah. So you just had to fucking say guitar center. Right. <laughs> Ruined it. In 1999, the Austin Chronicle described Thibodeau as an endearing, slightly goofy man of average size with sharp blue eyes and floppy brown hair. He was living in Austin, Texas then, and was working as an accountant executive for a mar- direct marketing firm that caters to high-tech companies. Uh, what... A- what of the sham marriage to Koresh's wife, Michelle? Is that true? The book he wrote by 19, April 1993, David had sexual relations with a total of 15 women. He fathered 17 children with 11 of them. Ugh. Woo. That's crazy. And Thibodeau said, indeed, Koresh had sexual relations with Michelle Jones, who is the sister of the first wife, Rachel. And he did so as a result of a vision. Rachel agreed when she had a dream about it. What in the world? So he had a lot of visions. Fifteen of them, to be exact. Yeah. Well, that's... <laughs> these people are so dumb. I know. Like, mm. I know he just said they don't want to be demonized, but man, these people have very little common sense. He's <laughs> um, like, hey, I just had a vision. We should have sex. Right. And the girl's like, all right. If you had a vision about it, I guess we'll I guess do that. I guess we to do it. <laughs> um, Michelle was 12 years old. At uh, the, what? I just read that. Sorry. I thought something happened to you. Something did you happen. Injured. Something did happen. <laughs> Michelle was 12 years old at the time and had Koresh's child. Oh, okay. I just processed what I read. Oh, yeah. So she was 12 years old at the time and had Koresh's child, Serenity, two years later. Boop. Yeah. Although, altogether, though, the real Michelle had three children by Koresh. Koresh did ask Thibodeau to marry Michelle, which he did without ceremony. Even though the marriage was in name only, it meant something to Thibodeau, who said, according to the Austin Chronicle, somehow being a husband, even in name, only settled me. So Michelle and her children did die in the fire, as did Rachel. But this is another part where the show makes her to look like she's like 20. Yeah. Not 12. No. So that's... I would not have said 12. No. But, well, this is back in the day. Because 12-year-olds now... I didn't look like 12-year-olds now did at 12 when I was young. Yeah, but still they're 12. Yeah, I know. That doesn't change. <laughs> you're right. That's like saying she's 12, but she looks 18. That's <laughs> what you're just making it sound I'm like. I'm not <laughs> advocating any of that. I'm just uh, saying I could see where no. looking at somebody, you would think that they're much older than what they are, is what I'm trying to say. I've never once seen a 12-year-old. Don't like, you put words in my mouth, sir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's they made that seem different in the show. Yeah. Steve and Judy Schneider. Steve Schneider is presented in the show as Koresh's right-hand man who kills him in the end before killing himself. He is married to wife, his wife, Judy, but allows Koresh to take her as his own wife and father a child with Judy. According to the Waco Tribune, the real Steve was Koresh's chief lieutenant who often negotiated with authorities during the standoff, and his wife Judy was legally married to Snyder, was was one of Koresh's wives. Quotation marks. Yeah, around wife. Wives. So apparently, it sounds like none of these were, like, actual marriages. They're just like, he's just like, you're my wife now. Well, it's the same with, like, sister wives. I love that show. 
but only one of them can legally be married to him. But then they all change their last name to Brown so that they can all have his last name. Weird. There's some weird people. A 1993 article by Cox News Service described the couple's saga, saying that when they were married, they were the all-American dream couple. Stephen Judy's daughter, Mayana, was his, but Koresh told people the baby was his. It was also true that men of the compound had to remain celibate except for Koresh. How convenient. (laughs) Yeah. With your 15 wives. What a weird situation. The newspaper recorded that Schneider told a fellow cult member he gave up Judy for what they were going to accomplish in the kingdom. Both were from Wisconsin. He graduated from the University of Hawaii with a degree in religion. Religion? What? I don't understand. Hmm. Just so we are, um, we should cite our sources. Yeah. So uh, we went to heavy.com. Uh, PBS.org, Britannica.com, Wikipedia. Any other ones you got you want to cite? Um, I don't believe so. I just I mostly use Wikipedia. Yeah. But we'll put those in the show notes. Um, but it's just a wild. I feel, after researching it, I feel differently than watching the show makes you feel bad for them. Yeah. And then when you read about some of the stuff he did, it's like there should be no one. If you're following this guy who's like, I'm going to sleep with an 11-year-old because she's my wife. Yeah. And He's a child predator. Yeah. And he uses God to make it okay, which happens a lot. That's so ugh, so gross. Like Jim Jones, which I would like to talk about eventually. Yeah, we'll get to him for sure. He had sex with men, women, ugh. everybody. But it's always funny how that's like a cult leader is always like, I can have sex with your wife and it's okay. Yeah. And then people are just like, okay. Okay. Like, what in the world? Kind of, what is going through your head? The only thing that's different about David Koresh that I think is that he's not on drugs. Like, most of them. Yeah. Like, Charles Manson, all that stuff, they're on drugs. And not that it gives them a pass, but I guess you know that they're it not in their right mind. Alters because, your mental state. Yeah, because yeah. they're on whatever. This guy's just But insane. he's just crazy. Yeah. Crazy. Well, he believes that he's God. Basically, he he, he states multiple times. So it's just, he can do no wrong, basically. No. No. God told him to have sex with 12-year-olds and have 17 kids with 11 women. That's what he's going to do. Ugh, that's just, I don't know how you are a guy and you go in there with your wife and then he's like, I'm going to have sex with your wife and you can't have sex with your wife. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) then you're like. How's that work? Yeah, that's, I don't know how you just like are okay with that or agree to that or just. Especially, you're not allowed to drink, you're not allowed to have sex, you're not, I mean, why? Why would you do that? <laughs> like, you know all the fun stuff? Like, yeah, you can't just do any take of that. all that away. <laughs> you're just going to worship me and Listen to eventually me die in a fire or by gunshot, we're not sure. <sighs> Crazy. So, so we would love to hear what you guys think about Waco. Um, I'd like to see how you guys feel about the miniseries, what your takeaways were. Do you feel sorry for the Branch Davidians? Did it open your eyes to something that you didn't know? Um, you know, what are your thoughts and feelings about it? Mm-hmm. Are you in a cult? Tell us about it so we can talk you out of it because is, don't do that. Is someone having sex with your wife? Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Because I would let us say, know. Comment. Yeah, leave us a comment. Like, right. <laughs> Rate review. Leave it in the <laughs> comment. Yes, we need a comment. Um, 
<laughs> all right. I guess that about does it. But All right. Well, you, you can follow us on all the, the social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Mystery History Podcast. Yep. Um, we really, we're getting um, some likes on iTunes. The thing that I don't like about iTunes is that you can't see who gives you the stars. Yeah, if you just leave her a star review, you can't see who did it. But if you actually leave an actual review, like a comment, write something, yeah, yeah, we'll be so able to. I'd be, I'd love to see some of those. Mm-hmm. I like to read. Yep. And as long as it's good, <laughs> <laughs> don't be a negative Nancy around these parts. Yeah, we're not perfect. We're doing. We got a new mic setup though. I'm curious to see if you guys can tell the difference. It's yeah. a lot easier because I don't have to sit next to this <laughs> stupid kid across from me. But yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's a lot more roomy over here by myself. Yeah. Not I think we'll continue to get better at it as well. Just talking. We're learning as we go. So, yeah. Yep. So we appreciate all the listeners. I'm really, um, I'm happy with, with you guys listening, what we're doing. Um, so we'll see how far, how far we can take this thing. Yep. Cause we're already international. What's next? <laughs> I feel like we almost have peaked. Yeah, might as well quit now. We're in France. <laughs> Shit. All, All right. right. Well, check us out on our website, uh, mysteryhistorypodcast.com. All that good stuff. All right. Have a good week, y'all. Oh, 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 oh,